Welcome to Establish the Edge. I'm your host, Mike Leone, coming at you with a solo podcast for this week. Before I get into this week's topic, which is handcuffing running backs in Best Ball Mania 3, want to urge you to like, review us on iTunes. Also check out the Establish the Run YouTube channel if you want to see the video version of this. I will be having some stuff on the screen for today's show, for example, so you can check that out. Establish the Run on YouTube. Again, subscribe, like us. It helps a ton and make sure you check out Establish the Run for our draft kit with just an incredible deal. We've got a ton of information, rankings for tons of formats that are out there, ADP, all that stuff to help you with your drafts as we get into the summer. But yeah, today's episode, I'm looking at handcuffing running backs in Best Ball Mania 3 and whether or not it's a good idea. And I wanted to look into this for a few reasons. I wrote an article about this on site, essentially just going to be walking through the article. So if you've read the article, you might hear some things that you read, but want to expand on some stuff and talk it through. But when I did the Best Ball Mania podcast for Best Ball Mania 3 with Justin Herzig, and we were talking macro strategy, one of the ideas he had was potentially handcuffing at running back. And his thought as to why this might make sense in Best Ball Mania in particular is the playoff format where You've got to come in first out of 18 in two playoff weeks to advance individually. And then you have the final with 450 or so people. And the idea is that you want to get a high leverage player in the final, someone that has a really high ceiling who isn't necessarily, who isn't owned on a lot of the other teams that you're competing against. Herzig won best ball mania one when this dynamic played out. And he was the only team that had Alvin Kamara through to the Week 17 final, Kamara scores six touchdowns on Christmas Day. Absolutely nutty result for Herzig. And he's able to take down you know, the championship, maybe not with the best team, but because he was the only one with Alvin Kamara that week. So one way that that could potentially play out is something like we saw with Dalvin Cook and Alexander Madison last year. We didn't get the production we wanted from those two backs from a handcuffing standpoint, but we did have a week where Dalvin Cook missed and Alexander Madison was the workhorse back. And then the next week, Dalvin Cook was back. And if you've handcuffed these running backs together and you've made it to week 16, all of a sudden Dalvin Cook's out. Well, you get the benefit of Alexander Madison workhorse role, which hopefully puts you into the final. And then in the final, you have Dalvin Cook. And a lot of the Dalvin Cook teams are eliminated in week 16, most likely because Dalvin Cook didn't play in week 16. So that's the idea, but in order for you know, that idea to be effective, a couple things need to happen. We need it to actually be somewhat of a unique strategy. We're just assuming it's unique. Other people aren't doing it because there's kind of this general anti-handcuff sentiment, but is that just in our little bubble or is that really happening? That's something we need to flush out. And then we also um, want to look at how does it affect the advance rates and the impact of your team scoring and success in the regular season. Cause obviously there's a break even point as always with having playoff leverage, having playoff uniqueness, but not hurting your team's chances of making the playoffs, not hurting your team's chances of becoming a super team. So that is, um, you know, kind of what spurred me looking at this Herzig bringing that up. I also wanted to look at it cause I really have been staunchly anti handcuff for a while. And the reason why I'm, anti-handcuff is I think it caps the upside on your teams, especially 
when you know you have a limited amount of spots to allocate to the running back position and we're generally advocating not devoting a lot of capital into running back so we want every single running back on our roster to have the ability to hit the home run and if you take alexander madison with dalvin cook madison's only i shouldn't say only but most likely only going to have value if something happens to Dalvin Cook. And if something happens to Dalvin Cook, one of your early round picks, you know, your team's advance rate already sinks so much. So we would rather pair, you know, Dalvin Cook with somebody else's handcuff. And now if Dalvin Cook has this huge season and you've got CMC's handcuff and CMC goes down with injury, now you have a super team. Like I want to try and build super teams as much as possible. And I feel like handcuffing prevents you from doing that because a lot of times you're wasting a spot on a player because the player is only valuable if he's healthy and the, the other guy in the backfield pairing is hurt. And you can't, you can't get right on both guys at the same time. Um, so you'll see that handcuffing wasn't as detrimental as I, I actually expected given you know this thought process going in. So what I did is I looked at some of the backfields that were somewhat clear handcuff situations not necessarily always the Alexander Madison Dalvin Cook role, which we consider an orthodox handcuff. I split the backfields into three types of backfields. That orthodox handcuff, which is basically early round pick with a back that was pretty clearly the second back on the depth chart, but that back wasn't wasn't going to have value for the team unless the starter got injured. So the situations that played out like that from an ADP perspective last season were Ezekiel Elliott, Tony Pollard, Dalvin Cook, Alexander Madison, CMC and Chase and, and Hubbard, Chuba Chuba Hubbard, Chris Carson and Rashad Penny, CEH and Daryl Williams, and Joe Mixon and Samaj P. Ryan. And those were the orthodox handcuff situations. Uh, the other situations were the ambiguous backfields, and those were backfields where both backs got drafted basically round seven or later, but before, you know, round 13 or so. So something like two bags going in round seven through 12 is what we were looking at. Um, the third type of backfield was dual role backfield, clear order. These were backfields where both backs could have value at the same time because one backs, you know, maybe um, getting the two down work, one backs getting the pass down work, but there's a clear order. So the ambiguous backfields were Zach Moss and Devin Singletary, Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon, Rojo and Fournette for the Bucks, for the Cardinals, Chase Edmonds and James Conner, for San Francisco, Trey Sermon, Raheem Mostert. The dual role clear order backfields were Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt, JT and Hines, Jacobs and Drake, Gibson and JD McKissick, Swift and Jamal Williams, Aaron Jones and AJ Dillon. Now there's some crossover between you know, the types I tried to put pairings into the backfield that best represented what they were. And again, heading into the season, what we thought going into the season. So uh, this year I would categorize Zeke and Tony Pollard as a dual role backfield with a clear pecking order because uh, Tony Pollard earned enough of a role last year and throughout the season that that was the case. He had value even with Zeke being healthy. Heading into last season, though, we we weren't sure that was going to be the case. That was more of like a Dalvin Madison situation for us, the way we were thinking. I did exclude teams that had injuries in the preseason 
which, you know, might sway the results a little bit. So like Derek Henry with Darrington Evans going down the Rams backfield. I tried to stay away from those backfields. I tried to stay away from backfields where there wasn't a clear handcuff um, because I, I don't think that was true to the spirit of what I was trying to look at. So without further ado, the results were pretty interesting here. The first thing I want to take a look at is the uniqueness. So how often was the field actually pairing these running backs together? And what we saw is for the vast majority of situations, the field paired the running backs together at a lower rate than expected. So if it was completely random, you know, we would expect 8.3% of all teams that drafted Dalvin Cook to have Alexander Madison. Um, and, and that 8.3% is just coming from your one out of the 12 teams. All these guys are getting drafted one in 12 chance. They get paired together. Uh, as you can see on this graphic, the vast majority of the time this didn't occur. There was with the orthodox handcuff situation, sometimes the RB2 didn't get drafted. So there's some interesting results there. So for example, uh, all the teams that drafted Joe Mixon, um, only you know a couple percent of those had Samaj P. Ryan on the team. But of the teams that drafted Samaj P. Ryan, you know, six percent or so had Joe Mixon on the team. And we saw a similar situation with CEH and Daryl Williams, where if you looked at all the CEH teams, only, you know, you know, 2% or so had Daryl Williams on it. But if you looked at all the Daryl Williams teams, because he didn't get drafted in every single league. So in the leagues that Daryl Williams did get drafted, he was paired with CEH 10% of the times. And in general, those orthodox handcuff situations, when there was a very clear second back, those were the ones that the field was most likely to handcuff together. So CMC Hubbard uh, exceeded the, the expectation mark. Dalvin and Madison exceeded the expectation mark. Um, and, and those were the ones that stuck out the most to me. Of uh, the other types of backfields, the non-orthodox handcuff situations, we only had two spots where the pairings were above expected. And that was Ronald Jones and Leonard Fournette from the ambiguous backfield and Josh, surprisingly, Josh Jacobs and Kenyon Drake from the dual role clear order backfield. From a median expectation, the dual role clear order backfields, those seem to be least frequently paired together. So um, what we're seeing is it is unique, but it's not crazy unique to handcuff backs together. It's going to happen less than you would expect at the rate of randomness. But it's not something that is being crazily avoided. It's happened probably about, I'd say, you know, 20% less than you would expect based on that of randomness. So was it effective, though? Um, this is what was really interesting to me is it did end up being decently effective. Uh, if you look at the advance rates here... What we see is the advance rates of RB1 and RB2 together on average were in line with the best running back advance rate from the pairing. Um, so that was kind of interesting to me. Uh, if you look at the exact numbers, the joint advance rate was 19.4%. That's actually higher than if you averaged the advance rates of all the running backs in the analysis, 17.9%. Um, 
do want to note that the average advance rate of the running backs in the analysis is higher than average. So you know, whenever you pair two players together that have in a higher advance rate than expected, you would intuitively expect the joint advance rate to go up. It is interesting um, that advance rates though overall weren't harmed by pairing backs together. I was actually pretty surprised by this given my anti handcuff uh, stance, I'm a little bit shaken there. Uh, and, and keep in mind that advance rates, that's top two out of 12. So that the advance rates did actually help you with the, with a, I guess not a high end ceiling, but low end ceiling, you know, two out of 12, isn't like playing for a floor scenario. Um, advancing is a pretty big deal. Only two out of 12 teams do that. Um, that's an expected advance rate of 17%. And again, uh, if you looked at all the pairings, the average advance rate of them, it was 19 plus percent, whereas the, the running backs individually were about 18%. What we do see though, as expected, that high end ceiling did get hurt. So unlike with the advance rates, the joint top 1% rate for the handcuff pairings came in at right around 1%, um, which is right in line with expectation. Of course, you would expect 1% of all teams to have a top 1% score in the regular season. Uh, that was much lower than the if you just averaged all the running backs together, their individual uh, 1% rate was 1.15%. One, you know, top 1% is always going to be a little bit noisy because the sample sizes aren't as strong, but you do see, you know, ultimately the conclusion is handcuffing did not hurt your ability to advance teams, but it did hurt your ability to build super teams, get those top 1% scores. And you do going into the playoffs want uh, a super team. So some mixed conclusions there, because uh, if you can advance the a handcuffed pairing and it's not going to hurt your advance rate and you can advance it. Some of the upside though, isn't in having that super team score that did get hurt by handcuffing. The upside is in the scenario that Justin laid out, which is okay. You've advanced Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon. It doesn't matter that that maybe hurt your chance of having a mega good team because now you you've opened yourself up to a situation where oh, Melvin Gordon goes down week 16 um, Javante Williams goes absolutely ham. All the Melvin Gordon teams get wiped out. Um, but then Javante Williams is unable to play the next week for whatever reason. And Melvin Gordon, you've got a unique Melvin Gordon, a workhorse role for the Denver Broncos. So you do set yourself up for that type of upside, even though the macro team upside is determined by regular season scoring is hurt by the handcuffing. Some other interesting notes that I found just looking at the different groupings. The ambiguous backfield was kind of hysterical looking at it in retrospect. So I determined RB1 and RB2 just based on ADP order. That's it. So again, the five pairings that I had headed into the 2021 season as an ambiguous, ambiguous backfield, Zach Moss and Devin Singletary, Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon, Rojo and Leonard Fournette, Chase Edmonds and James Conner, Trey Sermon and Raheem Mostert. Every single one of these, the market was wrong on the RB1 versus the RB2, uh, which was pretty remarkable. If you look at the uh, the advance rates for the RB1s were 13% for Zach Moss compared to 18%. Devin Singletary is the RB2. Javante Williams came in at 20%. The RB2 in the Denver backfield, Melvin Gordon, came in at 22.4%. 
Rojo's advance rate was only 10%, while Leonard Fournette's was up at 38%. Chase Edmonds's was only 11.5%, while Connor's was up at 36.1%. And amazingly, Trey Sermon was so bad that Raheem Mostert gets hurt in the first game, but because he got drafted later and they were both busts, uh, Mostert did technically have a, a slightly higher advance rate than uh, Trey Sermon did. So a uh, definite lesson in making sure that with these ambiguous backfields, you're attacking both sides of it. I wouldn't go overboard and say, oh, take the RB2 in these situations because they're cheaper and you know they, they hit at a higher rate. Uh, I think that's getting a little too precise. Um, what happened last year is descriptive, not predictive. I would expect the RB1s to have comparable hit rates relative to ADP to the, to the RB2s in these ambiguous backfields again this year. But I know for myself, I drafted a ton of Ronald Jones, barely drafted any Leonard Fournette last year. Absolute mistake. Just having that, that personal certainty instead of just saying, okay, these are backfields in general where we know there's going to be running back fantasy points scored. We don't know who's going to score them. So let's just, based on how value falls in our draft, be willing to take either side. And that doesn't mean you have to draft them, have the exact same exposures to both backs, but I do think you want to be somewhat balanced. Um, again, market goes 0 for 5 on those. I don't know if I love pairing. I think you could pair these guys together. Um, it was somewhat unique pairing these backs together. But what was really interesting was the dual role clear order backfields. Um, so one, these backfields ended up pretty unique. Only four, four out of six of these backfields had a sub 6% rate of the RB one teams also possessing the RB two. So they were paired together a lot less frequently than, um, you would expect based on the market and just relative to the other parents that we looked at here, the ambiguous backfields and particularly the orthodox handcuffs, they were paired together more frequently. So I think that was interesting. Uh, what was also interesting was the joint advance rate here was 25% higher than the average of the running backs as individuals. So um, that's pretty remarkable. That's even better than the, the data set on the whole. And I had talked about earlier, the data set on the whole, the joint advance rate or the joint top 1% rates really took a hit. Uh, that didn't happen if you just parsed out this backfield. And again, it's six backfield pairings, extremely small sample. So you got to take all this with a grain of salt, but, uh, for the ambiguous backfields, 9% higher, um, or I'm sorry for the ambiguous backfields, the top 1% rate on these teams was 22% higher than the average of the running backs as individuals. So, uh, the other backfield types, the ambiguous and the handcuff, the top 1% rates were meaning the joint top 1% rates were meaningfully lower than all the backs together. So uh, this seemed like it didn't really hurt your advance rate. It didn't hurt your ceiling a ton. And I should note that these backfields really were pretty strong health wise. No one suffered a season ending injury. Um, so it's going to be inflated because if you just took any two backs on teams where you know, even if they were uncorrelated and they just didn't get hurt there for a, you know a long duration, you know, that in some ways that's the name of the game is injury luck. But uh, I do think this opened up my eyes to hey, if you can have two players that based on their because they both have roles, there's a potential scenario where they both beat out ADP, even if the other back doesn't get hurt. 
And then they do have that weekly upside you want in the playoffs where the other back has a short-term injury. Um, I think that's interesting. I'm kind of open to these types of backfields and trying to handcuff them together. So Aaron Jones, AJ Dillon, again, this year, if you can get it at the right price, I would definitely want to do it after ADP and get some ADP value. But um, I think that's um, an interesting approach. I also think it signals you know, where handcuffing works and like it's, it's a really... It's really tough. Uh, it's it's a tightrope that you're walking with the handcuffing to get to work because what we've seen in the data is when there's a long-term injury, you're not really getting saved. You know, your team lost an early draft pick and it's almost better to write off, you know, that sort of team than try to save it via handcuffing. Um, and as a result, what we need to see is backfields where, there, where there's only short-term injuries, not long-term injuries. And that lends itself to backfields where, again, both guys can be ADP at the same time. And I do wonder if there's something about smoothing out the distributions where, um, you know, one week it's a pass game script and, you know, the pass game back is going to have a valuable score for you. You know, the next week the team's playing from ahead and the two down rushing uh, back is going to have a good game and a usable score for you and just juggling those usable scores over the course of the season knowing that you're going to get them at the right times because um y- you're going to need your rb2 score more likely when your rb1 fails and vice versa so uh that's something i want to look into for teammates in general even in the past game you know there's been some talk about you know can you draft t higgins if you've taken jamar chase because um, you know, for T Higgins that that huge ceiling and Chase to have that huge ceiling, it's probably not going to happen together. I do wonder if there's like, hey, these guys could both score a ton of points. So you're going to have these spike weeks where the offense just rolls as a whole and they're both in your lineup. But then you can also seesaw the other weeks where, you know, Jamar Chase is down. It's really unlikely if they both stay healthy that they're both going to have really bad weeks at the same time, just because the way wide receivers accumulate points via targets and receptions and yards and whatnot, necessarily through tons of scoring. Um, you, you could see that smooth out distribution, maybe helping your team over the course of the season. So uh, this was the analysis I did on handcuffing. I hope that um, going through that provides some benefit for you. I know there's not a ton of clear takeaways here. Um, it's something that I'm, after doing this, though, I am much more willing to try. Again, I really want to at value. I really want to focus on backfields where I think both backs could be okay or better than ADP without the other one getting hurt. I think those are my two main takeaways. And I'm a little bit, even though there were some spots where it worked with the orthodox handcuffs, I'm I'm a little bit against that because I think you know you're really trying to advance in those situations with. Um, with a dead roster spot because you don't want a long-term injury because a long-term injury would just sap the the RB one that you took early. Um, But if that's happening, that means the RB two that you have is useless. And I think that's a, you know, that's just too tough of a balance to try. So there are some backfields this year um, that if we take a look are somewhat interesting. Miles Sanders, Kenny Gainwell is interesting to me where, uh, I think Philly's going to throw more frequently than they did last year. I think they're going to be a pretty good offense and score a decent bit. And you could see some scenarios where Miles Sanders is really valuable the weeks that they're playing from ahead and on the ground game. And then Kenny Gainwell, because of his 
red zone role and what we saw early in the season in his rookie year, his ability when they're playing from behind and if they are a little bit more pass happy in those type of scripts to get there. Um, those are two backs that aren't very expensive right now. I think that one is an interesting one to try. I do think that like a Jonathan Taylor, Naheem Hines is very viable uh, because again, as much of a monster as JT is as a first round back, because Hines has this pass catching role, he's not totally dead with JT being healthy. And that, that one's really interesting to me too. Cause if you get into, again, best ball mania three, we're trying to win $2 million in the playoffs. You get into a scenario where JT misses just one week and Hines has that huge week. And now you've got a unique JT at the end. That's somewhat, somewhat interesting to me. Other ones like Zeke and Pollard and Aaron Jones and AJ Dillon. I wonder if those are too expensive to pair together. So I'd really want a discount there. If you could get it, I'd be somewhat interested. Um, Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon again, similar to last year, Melvin Gordon isn't going much earlier, but Javante is going a lot earlier and you kind of want Javante to really hit if you're taking him in round three. So I think I'm off that one, but that one's somewhat close. Brees Hall and Michael Carter is somewhat close for me where I think Carter could have more of a consistent pass down role than maybe we want to see as Brees Hall fans going into the year. Um, just looking through some of the other ones. One of the ambiguous backfields, you know, if you don't hate Seattle, I hate Seattle. I'm off Seattle, so I won't do it with this one. But Rashad Penny and Kenny Walker, maybe not even as a handcuff pairing, but just we've seen, and, I, and perhaps I didn't hit on this enough with the ambiguous backfield, because um, I hit on that the market had the RB1 and the RB2s wrong a lot, but the advance rates on the side that hit were so huge. Uh, Moss, or I'm sorry, Singletary, Melvin Gordon, Leonard Fournette, James Conner teams, like those teams did extremely well. So again, our lesson here is like, I think these are very profitable backfields and I'd almost not want to pair them. I'd almost like want to gamble individually on hitting that huge home run upside when I'm looking at these backfields where we're not really sure how it's going to shake out, where it's going to go. Maybe both guys have a role, but maybe they don't have a role. You know, it's that's what separates it from the the clear packing order, dual role backfield. So I think Rashad Penny and Ken Walker, an underdog particular, they're not going that high. I really hate the offense, but uh, they're going to run the ball. Kenneth Walker, extremely talented rusher. I know we you know, hate on him a little bit from a dynasty standpoint because of the landing spot and his lack of receiving ability, but a ton of upside as a rusher. Rashad Penny was absolutely absurd in rush yards over expectation last season. So that's a backfield where I'm not going to pair it, but I am a little bit open to taking gambles and I'm trying to learn my lesson. So far, I've taken a lot of Rashad Penny. I haven't taken any Kenneth Walker learning my lesson from last year, I'm going to be a little bit more cognizant of taking Kenneth Walker, even ahead of where we have him in our rankings in the spots where he falls below ADP. So um, that's the way I see it. Uh, I'm interested to hear people's thoughts. You can follow me at two hats, one mic on Twitter. If you're an ETR subscriber, hop in the discord, love to hear what you think about handcuffing running backs. If you think it's viable, um, if so, which backfield do you think it makes the most sense for this year? Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to check out Establish the Run on YouTube, Establish the Edge on iTunes, based on where you're listening or watching. 
like, subscribe us. Helps us to continue to do these podcasts for free. Good luck this season. Uh, hopefully one of you out there takes down seven-figure prize from Underdog this year.